0: Welcome to MediaPost's Brand Insider. I'm your host, Steve Smith, Editorial Director of Events here at MediaPost. Each week, we interview marketing leaders from companies old and new about how they build and evolve their brands on an unpredictable media and culture terrain. In addition to this full audio interview in podcast form, we also publish a companion newsletter with highlights from the Q&A. MediaPost has been covering marketing and media news for over 20 years. You can find the Brand Insider weekly as well as our daily coverage at MediaPost.com. For now, let's get into it. We want to welcome to the Brand Insider, Lynn Blashford, who's the CMO of White Castle. White Castle is the oldest hamburger chain in the U.S. It was founded in 1921, so it is about a year short of its 100th birthday, and we will talk about how it plans to celebrate it. Uh, it has more than 365 restaurants, but they're all owned and operated uh, by, the, by the main company, which is different from a lot of the major, uh, major brands in the QSR category. In fact, Lynn was with us last week at our Brand Insider Summit for QSRs. Uh, one of the things that many... Of you will uh, remember about White Castle if you remember it fondly as I did, as, especially as a kid, is its famous onion infused sliders, which is also uh, has become a big business for the company in the frozen food cases at most groceries. Lynn's been with the brand for, uh, for 10 years. She stepped into the CMO, uh, CMO role in January, but she's been in the QSR space for most of her career with her earlier roles at Donato's Pizza, at Long John Silver's, and Domino's. So Lynn, welcome. Where do we find you today? You're, you guys are based in uh, Columbus. Columbus, Ohio.
1: Uh, yep, it's a beautiful fall day here in Columbus. Although we did get our first snowflakes uh, oh. yesterday, which was just terrible to see and too, way too early.
0: Yeah, we had our first frost here in Pennsylvania the <laughs> other day. So, um, so um, as a century old 2SR brand, Tell me about where White Castle is in its history. Is it entering a new and different stage uh, from where it's been in the past? What's been its recent history and sort of the the marketing trajectory of the company?
1: Sure. Sure. Well, we never call ourselves old, first and foremost. (laughs) (laughs) We consider ourselves moving on to our 100th birthday because anniversaries also sound so stodgy. Mm -hmm. So birthdays are much more of a celebration moving into our 100th year in 2021. uh, I have to say the family owned piece is something we're very proud of from a heritage because we are on our fourth generation of leadership The company was founded by Billy Ingram in Wichita, Kansas, Is where the first White Castle was. And it's his great-granddaughter, who is our current uh, CEO and president, Lisa Ingram. So it's great to still have that family culture. And as you said in the intro, all of our restaurants are still owned by White Castle. We don't franchise, which could be part of why the, the growth has been very slow and steady. You think moving into 100 years, we'd have slightly more than a, just under 400. But it's great that we're all part of the, the same family. So we like to consider ourselves quite the innovators in some ways, you'd say at 100 years and our uh, look at being, it's really the first fast food hamburger chain. We know A&W, for example, is a, is a been around a little longer, but uh, from a first fast food hamburger chain, we feel like we've done a lot of innovating over the decades. And it's something that we're proud to continue to do and from a marketing standpoint that is you know always moving where the consumer is is something that really the the family ownership has always kept at the center of all our planning our mission is to create memorable moments every day and that's something that our team members in the castles kind of live and breathe so it's a function of you know wherever our cravers are what is the best way that we can create moments with them Well, let's let's talk a little
0: bit, since you mentioned that it has a a different growth trajectory from a lot of, say, franchise-driven brands. Um, Let's talk about that. Who is the White Castle customer? And when you're thinking about expansion, what are the things that you're considering most about where you want to be, who your main target is, and, Mm -hmm. and what's the growth strategy?
1: Sure. It's a great way, too, that we got into the frozen food section that you mentioned. When we think of our strategy, I mean, we're really much, very much a regional chain that is mostly Midwest and East Coast. And about 35 years ago, Lisa's father, Bill Ingram, was our president. And he realized that people were coming into the restaurants and wanting, you know, pack me up a hundred sliders from Chicago or from New Jersey. I'm I'm driving out West and the family doesn't let me come without White Castle. And there was this little invention in Kitchens, Uh, popping up everywhere called the microwave. So he went to food manufacturers and said, you know, we can't grow because we don't want a franchise. We're not gonna grow our restaurant footprint that fast. But clearly the crave has now expanded coast to coast. So how do we satisfy that? He went to several different food manufacturers with the idea to put uh, the sliders into the grocery, into the freezer section. And he was turned down by uh, multiple groups. So he decided we would make our own and we would cook the sliders just like we do in the restaurants, steamed, grilled on a bed of onions. And we'd package those up into our own frozen packaging. And that was sort of the birth of our retail division just under 35 years ago as we started selling to grocery. So in some ways, our customers have spanned generations, being 100 years Many of us were introduced by our parents and to them by their grandparents. So the customer today in a more traditional sense, certainly from the restaurant side, is very much um, similar to QSR and fast casual, but because our product has such a distinct flavor and taste, it's not very replaceable. So even on the retail side, when we do research, you know, if it's not there on the shelf, we've asked customers, what do you buy in place of it? And a good percentage of them will say there is no replacement. So I think that's part of what's helped the brand and the longevity and the element of of why it has become such a craveable item is because there's really no place that you can go that has this similar taste. Unlike getting a hamburger somewhere else you can, you know, in our competitive set, uh, everybody has something craveable. And for us, it's very much been our our spider that hasn't changed for decades.
0: Uh, How much of the business is the frozen food piece now?
1: Well, since the COVID, it has definitely surged to the point where our manufacturing capacity is one that is going to require expansion in the coming years, which uh, was a very pleasant surprise given, you know, but given this, this pantry loading and the freezer stocking. It represents, uh, we can't really share exactly that. Being a privately held family company, we don't just uh, share some of that data. It's less than the restaurants, but it's certainly growing at the greater trajectory at this point.
0: Uh, it raises an interesting question about your media mix. Since mm-hmm. you're your advertising, I imagine, uh, obviously for the restaurants themselves regionally, but then you've got this larger frozen footprint and it's very different... Uh, drive people to stores and keep things top of mind in a, in a C, you're, you're both CPG and QSR. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about typically before we get to the, the COVID crisis, what was your, what were your main media challenges and what kind of media mix did you usually use?
1: Mm-hmm. For the restaurants, we would use, I mean, a very standard, I'd say today, day and age, right, we've all expanded into digital and social, and most everything we've done for the restaurant side has been geo-targeted, you know, to the DMA or down to the zip code level, which is what's great about uh, the digital options that we have today. And we use a very traditional mix of um, some traditional media, although I'd say 2020 has definitely tipped that in the way that it is far more digital and less traditional, but we'll use the full array of, of integrated media from out of home to print to digital to social, uh, streaming audio, I mean, you name it. We also like trying and testing and learning. Moving into the retail side, the business actually through our, our great retail sales team had the accounts we're in for the last decade really has just been expanding our ACV and really just the, the reach of the product on shelves. And we've introduced new pack sizes. We've gone from a six pack, which is the standard to now selling our second best sellers, our 16 pack during the COVID has really increased. And a lot of that has grown uh, without any national media. The first national media we did outside of doing a few, you know, News America coupon drops for CPG over the last decade didn't have any national media until just a few years ago. And with that, we started with some um, audio. We've done some local market testing, you know, when you just look at the BDI, CDI and see where do we have some sales opportunity. And because we are doing media for the first time, I say this from about four years ago, mm-hmm. we started just um, putting some very segmented kind of tests out there. It gave us the opportunity to see what is going to work you know, for us between video and audio and, um, and digital. So it gave us some very con- great controlled test scenarios. But at this point, because of 2020 mm-hmm. uh, and just the surge in sales, we actually have the, the luxury of not being able to, to spend to grow demand at this
0: point. Is there anything special or different about the White Castle demographic? Is it, is it very much in line with the rest of QSR, or is there any, are there any sort of peculiarities or wrinkles to your...
1: I think the demographic on the restaurant side might skew a little more uh, urban because of the locations that we've been in for decades. So unlike building out in the suburbs, which a lot of newer brands will be doing, uh, we have a really nice mix of urban and suburban locations, very much dominated by... an. Um, urban or light kind of urban Mm -hmm. footprints out there. Uh, And because uh, of our longevity, our customer has a tendency to maybe be just a little bit older too. So that's why a lot of our media has focused on growing that next generation of cravers.
0: Are there particular channels, especially on the digital side that you've leaned into that are emerging channels that you found have been especially successful in finding new audiences?
1: Yeah, we're, uh, I think finding new audiences has been around almost as much about the content as it has been the media channel. Mm-hmm. It's really the combination of the two that's required. You know, there's not a social channel or digital channel we have not tried like many QSRs. I think it's what we found is, you know, is it just the right, is it the right content? And the other piece that we look at more so is uh, doing some content partnerships. So finding a publishing group that will help with the content that is geared towards their audiences instead of us just designing ads.
0: What Uh, kind of content are we talking about? Is is there a particular messaging, is the sort of a messaging spin for White Castle generally, a, a basic messaging mix and also a content type that you find most effective?
1: And I think so a lot of the content types that we look for that helps us expand our audience reach is more around a younger audience. So we've done things with the Onion and humor. I mean, you can think about the affinities for this category around humor and sports uh, and entertainment and gaming. So we'll look to a partner to say if it is a Twitch or if it isn't um, a Thrillist or The Onion, you know, for them actually to have a little bit more free reign with the brand, that's the other piece we're not very controlling. We like to have fun and we're clearly comfortable with different day parts such as late night where some of those content partners may have the ability to, to really be much more creative than, than we can.
0: And uh, engage it, that late night munchies crowd, which yeah. you never know who they are <laughs> 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 or why or why they're so hungry. <laughs>
1: yeah. You know, there, there was a time that we did some research that the stereotype would think, right, all these folks out late at night, because um, mm-hmm. about 75-80% of our castles pre-COVID are 24-hour businesses. And yes, we certainly benefit from the late night crowd of coming out of bars or other kinds of sporting events. But one of the pieces that was very interesting in the research was that we actually find that a good percentage of those customers are just coming from home or from friends' house. Or this is before delivery, because we did this several years ago before the delivery really grew. You know, they're really just out because they're just up late at night. The less, you know, the day parts are less traditional now, the working hours are less traditional. You know, they're either gaming with friends and want to, you know, run out and grab something to eat. So it wasn't always you had to be lit (laughs) (laughs) to find a castle, you know, at two in the morning. Uh,
0: um, So uh, let's talk about uh, how your brand encountered the COVID crisis Um, uh, and sort of bring us back to March and when it became apparent and, and how you, uh, you managed the, um, the crisis from a marketing perspective and the key pivots that you had to make. Mm-hmm.
1: I have to first say our, our first um, thoughts always go though to the safety of our team members and our customers. And then the marketing aspects became secondary. Mm-hmm. So just addressing safety Uh, concerns for our team members, you know, the quality of the food and how we were going to operate. And then being a family-owned business presented itself with other challenges, you know, working closely with our our CFO on how can this, you know, how might this play out this year? You know, a dozen different scenarios from being down 50% for the rest of the year or, you know, what will happen? So in March, it was a little bit of triage, right? There was a an element of how do we just protect the company? You know, we're, we're not going to move into our hundredth year in a way that is not prosperous. Mm-hmm. So that was the first piece. And then from a marketing standpoint, we were actually just about and did launch during the week of the pandemic was declared. A new advertising campaign, a new brand campaign we were working on that was very unifying for both the restaurants and the retail products, which was long live sliders.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And we had done all the filming and actually it had to stop because we were in New York at the time. And fortunately we got the good percentage of what we were trying to get for the year. But instead of, you know, video that is going to show people having fun or rather, or maybe like, you know, six, seven friends gather around gaming. We actually had to take what we did was fortunately had some footage where there's a couple and they're just kind of hanging out, you know, how you and your partner maybe laying in bed at the end of the night somebody's got the news on the tv somebody's got the laptop open and we do find through our social media uh, folks that post that a lot of people like to enjoy sliders in bed Mm -hmm. at night and i guess it's because they don't make they don't really make crumbs Mm -hmm. so uh and they're easy right to microwave or to bring home a sack so we had fortunately had filmed that element which was going to be part of the campaign and we really had to just put everything else on the shelf for a while. And that became the center point of the campaign that was more around, you know, bring a little of our castle to your castle. Mm-hmm. So it, uh, it worked out very well. And we just sort of leaned into that for the next few months uh, and are, you know, looking now it's more about just what are we shifting in our messaging and our promotions for the restaurant around bigger pack sizes, bigger meals, as people are going out less, but checks higher, baskets higher
0: do you we? already have a fairly uh, any uh deep relationships with third-party delivery vendors and and how, how did how much was delivery a piece of this before we went into the crisis and where are you now yep
1: we were very fortunate that we had been growing our delivery partner business for the last couple of years so when COVID hit I mean, the last partner i think we added on was uber eats and that was june where we launched a big campaign with them a year ago so all our partners were pretty well solidified, our relationships were, were solid, and it, and it wasn't really news to us operationally, we were very prepared. So yes, easily that business doubled right away uh, for us as a lot of that business migrated you know, from brick and mortar into uh, the delivery partners
0: and the, the you were working at a particular advantage in this case being own, having owned owning and operating all of these venues because you know you didn't have to deal with convincing franchisees to buy into the delivery infrastructure, let alone, I mean, you could have centralized relationships with all these different vendors.
1: Yes, that is very much a benefit of being privately owned and not having franchisees. And I've worked in many franchise organizations and they're great too and are passionate about their business, you know, equally. But when you are owned and everything is centrally located, it allows us to make decisions very fast. You know, I sit right across from our Our, our, you know, head of operations and the marketing team were, were small enough that everybody is tied into all the decisions. Our executive group was meeting, went to meeting daily, you know, from meeting every other week. And we were able to make decisions very fast. We had relationships already tied in. We had actually launched online ordering in our app eight years prior to this. So we had a lot of experience because our business is less like a burger chain. And when you think about it, it could be because people buy White Castle more in volume Mm -hmm. and it's shareable than just going in for, you know, a combo meal at at a burger chain for lunch. So for us, we knew this aspect of our business was already important, right? Well, we might compete against pizza or buckets of chicken because you go in and you buy sacks of sliders and shareable sides. So because of that, we were already into delivery and we had already been into online ordering for quite some time. So we were very well positioned uh, once, you know, once the shelter in places kind of loosened up and we had the drive-thrus in the, in the vast majority of our castles. So those were open and ready to go. And, and then with the products in the grocery store, I mean, it, it bode really well for having those two divisions of our business to balance each other out.
0: So are you overall uh, up for the year, up year over year?
1: I can say we are up year over year.
0: Um, I'm I'm curious, as you said, you have a fairly uh, mature uh, app, mobile app. um, And I gather that that means you have a fairly good constituency for the app.
1: You know, the app was developed when it was years, uh, eight years ago was more about the ability to place orders ahead of time. And because Mm -hmm. there we have orders such as like our Crave case, which is a, looks kind of like a some people customers call it a suitcase of 30 sliders the more we could get customers to order those kinds of large orders ahead of time the better it was for speed of service for our team members to be prepared as well as those customers you know that are coming so they're not just coming up to the menu board and saying give me 30 60 sliders Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they've ordered ahead and, and we can get them in and out quicker for their ability as well as those who might be in line behind them in the drive through So uh, the app was really just focused on online ordering. And we also had been working on a new loyalty program that we had just been piloting in the spring of this year. And we launched uh, this summer. So oh, it was the last of some of the technology roadmaps that we've been working towards. So we just uh, launched a new loyalty program, Craver Nation loyalty program.
0: And can customers um, book delivery through your own app? And how do you, how do you manage that? Um, yeah. do you, are you, that? Are you handing them off to particular uh, third party vendors through through the app?
1: Yeah, that's. We had tested. Well, actually, we tested delivery in the '30s. <laughs> once we used to deliver on college campuses. We tested delivery again to about eight years ago, our own delivery system, you know, similar to pizza. Mm-hmm. And it's just too difficult to, if you're not in the delivery business, to try to really commit to having a staff of delivery drivers and the training and everything that goes along with that. Uh, and the scheduling is very difficult. So we did try to test our own delivery. And this is why we've been in delivery business for a bit with third-party partners. We started that about three years ago, and uh, yes, we handed off to them.
0: What have been the main changes in your marketing mix over the last six to nine months? Uh, in, in, in you know, understanding all of these different changes, suddenly retail is even more important than it was before. Now there's a delivery infrastructure. Um, what are the? Um, how has the mix changed right now?
1: Yeah, it's been very pivotal. Uh, And it's really transformed our mix in a way that says, what do we uh, need to do to stay top of mind at the same time, uh, deliver profit to the company at a time that is just still a little uncertain where the future is going? So our mix has shifted to more digital and social. We really pulled back on the markets that were doing very high delivery, like the East Coast, New York, New Jersey, you know, those um, DMAs are much more delivery oriented right. than maybe a Louisville, Kentucky or St. Louis may be. So we really went market by market to figure out what is the right mix for each and every one of these DMAs. And so we pulled back a lot of traditional, uh, we canceled the outdoor contracts early on, but we did go back on out some out of home here towards the end of summer Uh, I'd say a lot of it was we cut back pretty heavily on a lot of traditional media and a lot of print. There was a lot less couponing and discounting going on, too.
0: Have there been any interesting discoveries by doing that? I mean, as people have been pushing and pulling at some of these marketing levers over the last six months, I've found in talking to a lot of them, there were a lot of surprises there about where things really were working and maybe there was waste.
1: Uh, I don't know if we found too much surprise, and we, you know, the the business intelligence team on our end would say it's about the most difficult time in order to try to isolate what is working and what is not with you know just the natural surges in business that are happening. So we didn't find too many surprises. Uh, in that in that I can say, I don't know, I'm not saying we were so much smarter right. going into it. Right. But if if anything, the one piece that's changed, more so than anything, has been more around social issues. So it was less about our marketing, but the pullback on traditional media and the more heavily emphasis into social allowed us to tell a greater breadth of story for our brand. Mm-hmm. So if anything, it was more about some of those content shifts. We found at least a third of our content we were producing was more around either social injustice or hashtag, you know, stop uh, hate for profit or just sharing and we called it, um, crave the good, sharing mm-hmm. how, you know, we're, we're feeding healthcare workers sharing stories of what others are doing in their community during this time. So if anything, it gave the brand the opportunity to share our breadth of our story and more so than just being promotional, right? You know, when you think about some traditional QSR or, or driving shoppers to the, you know, the freezer aisle, it gave us an opportunity to flex what really comes from our heart and soul more. And that was our marketing team. loved that. The fact that, our team members found pride in that. So it was it was really a great time to kind of flex that element of our brand that usually gets a little more of a secondary.
0: And it sounds like it didn't have any impact, negative impact on, on sales and performance in the end. I mean, you're sort of proving a case to yourself, I think, about what kind of brand content moving forward you can do without necessarily negatively impacting the bottom line.
1: That's true. You know, a couple of years ago, if you'd said anything about putting something political about your company and social, the attorneys and half the company would have been, oh, no, that's taboo. We don't want to talk anything about, you know, politics. But when it, you know, there was just such a such a social change this year, mm-hmm. and especially from youthful movements and from our own communities and our own team members. And everybody had almost this, this pent up desire to share more about who we are. And we felt comfortable doing it because we are in many urban communities. Mm -hmm. And we do represent a huge diversity of our team members in the castle are actually the vast majority of our general managers are women. Mm -hmm. And we have a a very high representation of of many of different um, ethnic diversities. Mm -hmm. So we knew there would be some people, you know, there's always going to be some backlash, but we were okay with that. Uh, And just prepared for it, you know, if anybody, you know, stay out of politics, you always get the, you know, the comment about, I don't want my food to be political, please don't make me choose sides. Uh, But I'd say for the most part, you know, people were very supportive. And it's always really interesting in social media, too, to, to watch the comments of our cravers who stand up for the company to those that were making other negative comments. So we never... Come back and tell anybody their opinion isn't valid or, or wrong. But it's always kind of interesting to see how the others in your you know feed will stand up for the company and be the ones to, uh, I guess to, to, just share you know their stories and and take up for you.
0: So as you look into the 2021 media landscape, which is sort of characterized by its uncertainty now how do you plan for it? What do you What do? You do? I mean, I know everybody tells me who knows, but you, you've got budget. You've got to do something with it. You've got sales targets. Um, so how are you managing the dealing with the uncertainty?
1: Yeah. Right. So planning goes on, right? Buys still have to be made. We have agency partners that are, you know, still waiting on on briefs or which markets are going to get advertising and which ones aren't. We are preparing for multiple content, just multiple plans. We have several different scenarios and plans to support all those scenarios. You know, business kind of stays as it is. Business grows, business declines. Then you have levers to pull. So we're, you know, you plan in a way that says, this is how we're going to move forward. But then you have to, at least for us this year, put some dollars into a reserve. And that's probably not the best term for it, but put some dollars into the ability to say, okay, if this happens, we pull this lever, which that comes from these pools of marketing dollars. So it, it makes it a little more challenging, but you know, as marketers don't, isn't this what keeps us excited is we don't like the same all same all right it's always going to be something that says you know how do we how do we challenge ourselves and every one of these moments are kind of a catalyst to something else
0: this is the ultimate stress test for for all of our <laughs> talents <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Well, Lynn Blashford, thank you so much uh for for your time today. We appreciate it. We hope that uh we have you back uh, you know, for the when we finally bring the uh the QSR brand summit live. We hope sometime next year, we hope to have you there.
1: <laughs> well, thank you, Steve.
0: And thanks for tuning in to Media Post's Brand Insider Podcast. You can keep up to date with breaking marketing and media news at mediapost.com. That's also where you can subscribe to the Brand Insider newsletter, where highlighted versions of these interviews can go to your email inbox each week. If you have any comments or suggestions for the Brand Insider series, please send them to me, steve, at mediapost.com.